Olympics in Berlin, a University of Washington eight-oared crew, which represented the United States, narrowly beat out Italy and Germany to win the gold medal. This victory was the catalyst during the 30s for the rise of popularity of rowing as a legitimate sport. The story is told in the book, The Boys in the Boat by Daniel Brown. And the story within the story is how all nine members came from lower middle class families and how they all struggled to earn their way through school during the depths of depression along with a chronicle of their victories and defeats, the story teaches the importance of synchronization of the eight rowers as they respond to the coxswain and his communications with the stroke and consistent pacing and sprint to the finish. The description of the final race pictures all team members completely exhausted and in tremendous pain at the end of the competitive race to win their gold medal. And the writer of the book, The Boys in the Boats, claims that competitive rowing is perhaps the toughest of sports. Could it be even tougher, perhaps, than the big game millions will watch tonight. I believe Daniel Brown would likely argue that it is. He states that the heavy use of every muscle in the body would be equivalent to playing two basketball games back to back. We come to another story, a true story of some boys in the boat found in our passage in the book of Mark. Their strenuous rowing is for a bigger purpose than the gold medal. It is for something more important than the Super Bowl. In this well-known true story, we might be prone to try and find ourselves in the passage. Since we are so me-oriented, we tend to make every story about us. Oh, we'll see ourselves in this incident. No, make, make no mistake about it. But the whole thing is about Christ and who Jesus is. He is the I am. There is no place where we can't find peace. He is with us in the middle of the storm. I am reminded of the story Alan Redpath, former pastor of Moody, loved to tell. He had two daughters who loved to swarm him as soon as he came home at night. As he came in the door one this one particular evening, his, his two little girls ran to be the first to hug daddy. The older one got to him first, and she, she grabbed a hold of his leg and hugged him with all of her might. She then turned to her younger sister and said, Now I've got all of daddy. Just then, the dad snatched the other daughter up in his arms. And the daughter in his father's arms smirked and looked at the older sister and said, Well, you may have all of daddy, but daddy has all of me. (laughs) I like that. The boys in the boat will discover that God has all of them. They are indeed safe in the storm. 
We continue in our study in the book of Mark, following Jesus in a fast-paced world. And, and we're looking at t- to discover the marks of a disciple. Now, I love the gospel of Mark because of its no-nonsense. and It's a fast-paced book, and it's hard-hitting. I mean, you can't read the book of Mark and remain neutral. The book really is about how Jesus is preparing his followers for service. Jesus isn't after knowledgeable followers, but transformed followers. And the disciples are in the school of discipleship. And so are we. And so are we. They were called to not only be observers of what Jesus was doing, but participants. And that's where all of this is going this morning. I want to give you the takeaway at the outset. I don't want us to miss it. A mark of a disciple. A mark of a disciple is a participant in the work of the kingdom. A mark of a disciple is a participant in the work of the kingdom. Every one of God's children are called to be participants in the work of the kingdom. All are. Well, if you're not there, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark chapter 6. John said if you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 712. Mark chapter 6, you know, it's, it's a story that almost everyone knows. It's a story not only Christians and scholars know so well, but, but everyone knows this story. And the, and the issue with a familiar story like this is to see the miracle and miss the point. Jesus did everything on purpose. And so we, we have to ask as we come to this miracle of Jesus walking on the water is why he did it. Why he did it. John calls miracle signs for they point us to something. Why did Jesus walk on water here? Well, to to reveal his identity, his divinity, and bring his divinity near to them. To reveal his identity, his divinity, and bring his divinity near to them. But as is very evident, by the time we get to the end of this miracle, is that Jesus did this for the training of his disciples. And since we're following Jesus through this book, we can also conclude its training for us as well. And so I want us to look first at the context, and then the crisis, and then the compassion, and then the conclusion. That will form our outline this morning, if that's of interest to you. Context, crisis, compassion, conclusion. So first of all, let's look at the context. Mark chapter 6, follow along with me, verse 45. Remember, if you don't follow along, sometimes I throw words in there that aren't there, just to make sure you're following along, right? Verse 45, I'm not doing that here unless I do it by mistake. Verse 45, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowds. Now, the context, the scene before us, takes place immediately following the miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000 people, which really is a misnomer. It was more likely around 20,000 people or more when you factor in women and children. 
And he just didn't just feed them minimally, but to the place of being full with 12 baskets of food left over to feed the disciples. This was a massive miracle with the greatest degree of participation than any other of Jesus' miracles. And so you can see why the enthusiasm for Jesus here reaches its fever pitch. This was the kind of king everyone wanted, one who would be their source of permanent food supply. So the excitement's in the air. Jesus is at the peak of his popularity. And right here, one might wonder, shouldn't they have stayed? Mark tells us that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. Why this sense of urgency? Why the forcefulness of this? Well, well, John's account of this same story shed some light on on this for us. In John 6.14, you can go there if you want. I'm going to read it for you. But but in John 6.14, it tells us that after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, meaning the miracle of the feeding, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And it says now, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus knew the intent of the crowd. They wanted to make him king. And they, of course, were thinking of a temporal, physical kingdom where Jesus would overthrow Herod and take on Rome. Well, Jesus didn't come with some kind of political agenda. He didn't come with with an economic agenda or social agenda or even a moral agenda. His was a spiritual agenda. He came to offer salvation, and his kingdom would be a spiritual kingdom. He would be a king and he, he and rule in the hearts of those who trusted in him. You see, Jesus wants to be king of our lives. That's where his reign is. He wants to rule in our hearts. Does he rule in your heart? Don't play games with that. Does he rule in your heart? Is he Lord of your life? Is he Lord of the compartments of your life? Is he Lord of your finances? Is he invited to rule on your decisions that you're making? Does he reign on your activities? Is he Lord of the hours you spend at work? Is he Lord of your parenting? Is he Lord of your sex life? Is he Lord of your use of time and abilities? Is he Lord of the private matters of your heart? Does he reign there? Does he rule over every room In your heart. That's what he wants. You see, many want just enough of God to keep them comfortable, but not enough to intrude their lifestyle. We like it when God takes care of our physical needs. We can get all excited for Jesus when he comes through for us on some physical level. Yes, God. God, right? 
And if we aren't careful, we can be like the crowd and be consumers of grace. We too can be thrill seekers and look to jump from one exciting experience to another. And that's what's going on here. And Jesus, knowing the crowd's mindset as consumers, didn't want his disciples to be influenced in any way by this external mindset. He didn't want them getting all caught up in this stuff, getting all caught up in the euphoria. He had something more substantial for them that would move them to be participants in the work of the kingdom. So he pretty much forces them to get into the boat. So the boys get in the boat. It leads to the crisis. The crisis. Verse 46 informs us that after dismissing the crowd, which which on a side, I, I don't know how you dismiss a crowd of that size, who had a revolution on their minds, but somehow Jesus pulled it off. And the verse tells us after he dismissed the crowd, he, he withdrew to pray. Jesus is praying. At the peak of power, Jesus goes off by himself to pray. When by all human standards and growth experts, he should have stayed to capitalize on this growing popularity, this success, this momentum, but Jesus will have none of that. Jesus is praying. He's praying. What about the boys in the boat? Now think about this. The kingdom at this point is all in one boat. (laughs) Twelve guys in one boat is really all there is to show for Jesus' ministry at this point. Not that impressive. And these guys in the boat aren't very impressive either. Let's get a little ahead of ourselves for a moment and catch a snapshot of the condition of the hearts of the boys in the boat. Look at verse 52. It was read for us earlier. Verse 52. Well, look what it says about them. This isn't being said about the Pharisees here. This is being said about the 12 boys in the boat. They had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. And I note, you've got to be kidding me. Now, we know this story so well, we miss the point. What is Jesus doing here? Why will we see him walking on water? Why did he force these guys into the boat? It has everything to do with preparing these guys for his work. Jesus was about to move them from being consumers of grace to participants of grace because a mark of a disciple is a participant in the work of the kingdom. That's a mark. It's an identifying mark whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or not. Well, how will he do this? He puts them right in the middle of a crisis. Look at verse 47. Verse 47. It says, when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Now, some of these guys in the boat were fishermen. So we might say they were experts under these kinds of conditions. They had been in storms before, but there's something about this storm that was getting the best of them. 
They appear to be way off course, and, and they're no longer using sails, but have resorted to rowing. They are straining at the oars and yet getting nowhere. You know the feeling. And Mark points out that while they're in the boat in the middle of the lake, Jesus was alone on land. Might Mark be referencing another time they were in a storm like this and feared their lives? Where was Jesus that time? In the boat with them. If Jesus was here, they must have thought, he could could do something about this. You ever thought that? Ever wondered where Jesus is when you're facing that, that financial storm? Or when you're facing that relational squall? Or you're facing that, that, that bully at school? Or, or dealing with that unreasonable boss? Or, or, or you're facing an, an, that weighty matter that seems to be with you wherever you are? Where are you, Lord? We panic so soon, don't we? I mean, we can't find the key to our car and we start questioning the existence of God. (laughs) Oh God, you'd help me find it if you were here, if you were real. Where are you, Lord? I'm stuck in traffic. I need to be somewhere in 10 minutes. God, where are you? Right? And some of you are straining at the oars, you are worn out from rowing. You're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to follow him, and it just feels like you're getting nowhere. Now, a casual observer of this scene might figure that the storm came because the disciples did something wrong. We like to conclude that, at least when it comes to other people and their trials. So what did you do this time to get yourself in this mess? We like to say when it fits others. Now ourselves, we say it's the hand of God. But in others, we say, what did you do? How'd you mess up? The boys are in the boat straining at the oars because they obeyed what Jesus told them to do. They're not in this situation because they made wrong choices. It is exactly where Jesus wants them. You know, there is is bad theology out there today that says as long as you're obedient, all will go well. Not true. All going to be hunky-dory once you obey Christ? No. Not true. We must remember what Jesus is after here. This is intentional training of the disciples to become participants of his grace and his work. And part of God's training is to put us in situations where trust in ourselves just won't cut it. Where our efforts left to ourselves won't get us through. As it's been said, Jesus relentlessly undermines all that is not God to make room for the God who has redeemed our hearts. Jesus relentlessly undermines all that is not God to make room for the God who has redeemed our hearts. That is what he's doing in our lives. That's what he's doing here. Disciples in training 
come up against a violent storm. They're straining at the oars. They are using every muscle in their bodies to row. And our passage tells us this is the fourth watch of the night, which would be somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. And unless I miss my guess, that means they have been in this boat for seven to eight hours. Where is Jesus? Where is Jesus in the storms of life? Now, there's tremendous comfort found in two words in our passage. It might be all too easy to kind of zip right past the first two words of verse 48. The first two words of verse 48, speaking of Jesus, it says, He saw. He saw. Whether he saw them with his human eyes from the mountainside as he looked out or or he saw them in his divinity beyond what any human eye could see doesn't really matter because the fact of it is his eyes were on them even when they couldn't see him. Isn't that the case? I mean, is is there ever a time, even a nanosecond, that our Lord doesn't see us? How comforting is that? The thought may be unnerving when we're being disobedient and we're we're doing something no one else can see, that God can see us. But but it also brings incredible assurance that he sees us in that crisis while we're straining at the oars, when we figure we can't row any longer, when we may wonder, where is Jesus? One tribe of a Native Americans had a unique practice for training young men. On the night of a boy's 13th birthday, this boy was placed in a dense forest to spend the entire night alone. Until then, he had never been away from the security of his family or tribe. But on this night, he was blindfolded and taken miles away. And when he took off the blindfold, he was in the middle of thick, woods by himself all night long. Every time a twig snapped, he probably visualized a wild animal ready to pounce. Every time an animal howled, he imagined a wolf leaping out of the darkness. Every time the wind blew, he wondered what more sinister sound it masked. No doubt it was a terrifying night for the young boy. And after what seemed like eternity, the first rays of sunlight entered the interior of the forest. Looking around, the the boy saw flowers and, and trees and the outline of the path in front of him. And then to his utter astonishment, he saw the figure of a man standing just a few feet away, armed with bow and arrow. It was the boy's father. He had been there throughout the night. Never left. Child of God, you are never out of his sight. It is in the crisis that we can know of God's compassion. Compassion. And so as they're straining at the oars, totally exhausted and frustrated, the Lord of creation shows up in compassion. He comes to them by walking on the water. Mark Twain was accompanied by his wife on one of his visits to the Holy Lands. 
They were staying in Tiberias on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and it was a moonlit night, and the weather was perfect, which gave Mark Twain the romantic idea of taking his wife out on the boat for a little ride onto the lake. So they walked down to the pier. Mark Twain saw a man sitting there in a rowboat, and he asked him how much he would charge them to row them out on the water just a little bit and then come back in. Mark Twain was dressed in his usual white suit and white shoes and white Texas hats. The oarsman, presuming him to be a wealthy rancher from the USA, said, well, I I guess it's going to be about $25. $25 just for a boat ride, Mark Twain said, thinking the price was way too high. So Mark Twain turned away with his wife on his arm, and he was heard to exclaim, now I know why Jesus walked. (laughs) Well, not, not exactly, not exactly. Jesus walked on the water for a different reason, to show them his divinity and to bring that divinity near them. This was a very critical juncture for these disciples. And in Matthew's recording of, of this event, that what follows this lesson in the rowing class is that they worship Jesus, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. You see, this is a real turning point for them. Now, I remind you that this whole scene is about Jesus moving them from consumers to participants in the work. This scene is all about them seeing who Jesus is. Now, there's something rather interesting in this passage as Mark records it for us, what we could easily miss. There's a little phrase that at first pass seems rather odd. As Jesus is walking on the water towards them, notice the end of verse 48 It says, he was about to pass by them. Why would he be passing by them? Makes very little sense for Jesus to see their straining at the oars and then in compassion act on that by walking out to them and then just keep walking by. What's with that? Remember, Jesus isn't doing this for show. This walking on water bit might be used by us if given the chance to kind of flaunt it and have some fun with it. You know, your mom's out on the, on the middle of the lake on the tube just kind of relaxing and you come walking on the water and go, hey, mom, and just keep walking by. I mean, that's how we'd use it. We'd have some fun with it. Watch this. That's not what Jesus is doing. This is what it's all about. Jesus isn't saying, watch this, boys. I can walk on water. What is it? Why does Mark say he was about to pass by them? Now, there are several interpretations suggested. I'm not going to give them all to you because I want you to hang around to the end of this. But it might mean that Jesus is moving to a position where they can best see see him. Perhaps perhaps it's it's written from the perspective of the disciples. It it wasn't ever Jesus' intent to walk by them. But from their perspective, here is this phantom-like being walking by that they soon discover is Jesus. But there's another possibility, and I don't think it's a stretch, but I'm going to leave it to you for further study. The language used here is quite interesting. These words passed by or passed before you echo the Old Testament. You might recall in the book of Exodus, Moses makes a request to God to show that, that, that God show Moses his glory. And the Lord replies that no one could see God face to face and live. Then interestingly, God says to Moses that he will have the opportunity to have God pass 
by him in all his glory, but that he would cover Moses with his hand until God's glory passed by, so that all Moses would see would be the back of God, but not his face. Same words. We see it again in Elijah's time of of depression in 1 Kings 19. God reassures his servant Elijah that his presence is with him. And and he says to Elijah in 1 Kings 19.11, he says, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Interesting. And this crisis moment for his disciples, like Elijah and like Moses before him, they experience the glory of the Lord pass by. On the Sea of Galilee, with these guys in the boat, the glory of God burst through the cloak of the humanity of Jesus. And as Mark records this event, he refers to this passing by. These disciples saw the glory of the Lord shining out of the Son of God. And since Jesus is after showing his divinity and having his divinity come near them, this seems to make a lot of sense. It's further supported by what Jesus says to them. He walks out to them in their crisis. He shows the glory of the Lord to them. They become frightened, not knowing what it was they were seeing, and they cried out. These, these boys in the boat, literally, they screamed. They screamed. Like, like a bunch of girls, perhaps. I don't know. They screamed. And Jesus, in compassion, speaks to them to calm their fears. He speaks to them. And what do they need right now from him? Do they need a lecture? <laughs> they need a kick in the pants. They need some kind of beating. They've been straining at the oars for hours. They are worn out. They are fearful. They're living through a crisis of no fault of their own. And Jesus says to them, take Courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. And the words, it it is, I, could be better translated, I am. I am. I am has appeared. Jesus is revealing his divinity to these disciples, reminding them that I am. M, the almighty, eternal creator God has come near. I am. And he gets in the boat with them. Wow. What do we conclude? What do we take away from this? What's the conclusion? Mark of a disciple is a participant in the work of of the kingdom. And what God is doing in every one of his children is to prepare them for his work. We're not called, loved ones, to be consumers of grace. We're called to be participants in his work. And this story, like all of Mark, shows us how Jesus is preparing them for service. They were in the school of discipleship continually, and so are we. Question is, are we learning the lessons? Are we learning the lessons they had not understood about the loaves? They didn't learn the lesson. Are we learning the lesson in the midst of the crisis? Are we seeing ghosts or the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, when I read those words in verse 52, 
But their hearts were hardened. Before I jump all over them, it kind of scares me a little bit, quite frankly. It scares me. A person, a person can be so close to the action and still have meager faith and a stony heart. I mean, you can preach it, you can teach it, you can sing about it, you can read about it, you can attend all the right things, and still your heart is stony. Is this not a warning to everyone in this room? Everyone. Is our heart open to the transforming work of Christ, or is it getting hard Is it hardened? Is it resistant to change? Is it comfortable to stay right where we are, satisfied with a little bit of growth, satisfied with a little bit of knowledge? Listen, we're not called to be consumers of grace, but participants in his work. And so whatever storm you may be encountering, God is in it wanting to reveal his glory to you. Whatever storm you're facing, God has all of you. He is the great I am. Will you trust in the Lord of the storm? Is the strong wind opposing you? Is is, is there peace or panic there? Remember, remember, he has sent you on that journey. He knows the purpose of the storm, and really, that's enough. So keep rowing. Keep rowing confidently in him, loved ones, row on. Because God has a purpose in it. God is calling us, moving us to participate in his work. Don't miss seeing the lessons. Paul Tripp. Paul Tripp tells them an experience many of us can relate to. He says, I gave birth to a son who just doesn't understand gifts. My wife and I would go out when he was a little guy to buy what we thought was the perfect gifts. He would tear open the gift and it'd end up playing with the box. It drove us crazy, he said. So we decided on Christmas that we're going to find the gift of gifts that he would not be able to resist. And so we shopped and we shopped and we shopped and and we found that perfect gift. And we were so excited. We were much more excited at that moment when the gift came out from under the tree than he was to unwrap it. Much more excited than he would ever been. Well, he ripped open the gift like a little boy would. and, And he actually took the toy out of the box and he began to play with the toy. Imagine that. And he says, I had a feeling of such victory. And, and so I went into the kitchen to get something to drink for a moment. And, and I was only there for a few minutes. And when I came back into the living room, my son was sitting in the box. I couldn't believe it, he says. If you're one of God's children, you have been given the most awesome gift that could ever be given. It is a gift that in all of your work and all of your effort, all of your achievement, you couldn't ever earn. It is absolutely, without question, the gift of gifts. It is the gift of grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has been given to you, believer. It has been given to you. Do you want to be part of redemptive history? 
There are many Christians who are content to play with the box. Play with the box. We are content with a little bit of Christianity. We're content with a little bit of what we do on Sunday. We're content with a little bit of theology, with a little bit of God. He's called us to something bigger and greater than what we often settle for. He has called us to his work. Called us to be participants in the work of the kingdom. Let's not play with the box. Let's be workers in his kingdom. Let's pray. God.